In November of 2019, the first cases of COVID-19 showed up. Since then, the coronavirus that causes it rapidly spread around the planet, infecting tens of millions. While most survived the disease, many patients, likely well over 50%, experience severe symptoms that linger long after they recover from COVID. These so-called long haulers experience dozens of issues, including respiratory distress, fatigue, muscle pain, anxiety, and cognitive problems like poor concentration, focus, and memory. We don't even know how long these symptoms will last or how severe they are because the condition is so new. How can a virus continue to have such a big impact even after it's gone from the body? What will happen to people who continue to experience debilitating effects of COVID-19? How do we manage ongoing health effects of a pandemic even after we get the virus under control? I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a developmental and clinical health psychologist, and this is Life in the Time of Corona. Welcome to Life in the Time of Corona. Today we're joined by Jay Gunkelman, one of the foremost authorities on understanding brain functioning through electroencephalography, or EEG. EEG is the record of electrical activity of the neurons that make up the brain. In his long career, Jay has processed well over 500,000 EEG records. He served as president of the International Society for Neurofeedback and Research, as well as a board member and treasurer of the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, and is a past president of the Biofeedback Society of California. He is a prolific writer and teacher, publishing or participating in hundreds of scientific articles, research projects, books, and meetings around the world. He's co-founder and chief science officer of Brain Science International. Jay, welcome to Life and Time of, the, of Corona. Thanks for the invitation to present. So what, my first question to you is, what are some of the biggest changes that you've made in your life as a result of this pandemic? Well, <clears throat> masking is not one of them. Um, I've had a cerebrospinal fluid leak for a few years, so I've been masked up and somewhat socially distanced, but the social distancing and hygiene end of my life has gone up. The masking hasn't changed a bit. Um, uh, it, it largely, I have for quite a few years now basically stayed at home um, other than rare trips out, uh, occasionally to a scientific meeting. But uh, even those uh, pretty much now obviously just are being done remotely. So uh, I'm pretty well adapted to, to the Rona life, uh, as it were, um, um, uh, it, it's impacted me because my son uh, ended up being infected and but very mild and and got through it very readily. So uh, it was fortunate. Not everyone's that fortunate, as you know. That's certainly true. And I'm really glad that you and your son are among the more fortunate and that everyone's all right now. COVID hitting home just seems to make it all more real somehow and more urgent. Now, I'm glad that this does not relate to your son, but as you know, some people who had COVID-19 and recovered from the coronavirus continue to have dozens of symptoms, including brain-based symptoms. I wanna focus on what's going on in the brain, particularly what we can tell from EEG recordings. But, but first, can you explain what an EEG is and how it tells us about brain functioning Sure. The, the brain um, is a, an electrochemical entity, and it 
doesn't just work with the chemistry, although a lot of the drug companies would like to think that depression is a serotonin deficiency, which it's not, you know, but, uh, but uh, the, the neurochemistry supports the brain's electrical activity. Uh, the, the neurotransmitters are required for brain function, but the brain function is a, is a dynamic electrical event or electro, uh, electromagnetic event. We, we tap into it as the EEG, but there's magnetoencephalography, which taps into the magnetic aspect of it. And then there's obviously, you know, structural uh, assessments. Now, MRI and CT scans look at the structure, but they don't tell you about the function. Functional MRI gives you a little bit of an idea about the function, but it, it's in the time domain of, of, of minutes to seconds, not milliseconds. And the EEG operates in the millisecond time domain and in a resolution that you can't really get from any of the structural imaging uh, slash functional imaging, like functional MRI or uh, spec scans or PET scans, which actually take uh, time to uh, acquire their images. So it, it shows a, a, an active dynamics that is really missing from other imaging technologies, but the EEG is able to produce really quite highly reliable, uh, valid results to reflect brain function. The state of arousal, are you sluggish and under aroused? Are you over aroused? Are you agitated? Are you uh, you know, passive or virtually in a coma. I mean, all, all those are different states that the brain can acquire. And uh, the EEG is a good way to identify what state the person is in and to a certain extent, what kind of content is happening within that state. So because it's faster than MRI or, or, or CAT scans, you can get a lot more information about the dynamics, the movement, the, what the brain's doing kind of from millisecond to millisecond. Yeah, exactly. Um, my business partner likes to use the construction analogy of a wall. You know, you do a CT scan of the wall or an MRI of the wall, you can see that there's pipes and wires in it. And you might even see if the wire has got a splice in it or something. But it doesn't tell you how much current is going through that wire or if it's sufficient or insufficient current. And and the EEG uh, shows the the dynamics of that. and. We, we, we like to put them together so you can actually see a combination of structural and functional imaging. It gives you a better idea. The MRI and CT scan give you much more spatial resolution. We give you much better temporal resolution. The two together give you a pretty darn good idea what's really going on. Now, now with some of these uh, long haulers, what, what are some of the neural or cognitive symptoms that are, are being reported or seem to be common? Well, there's EEG features, but there's there's a lot of other things going on as well. And one of them is a, a postural uh, tachycardia. If you stand up, your heart rate jumps way up from a resting state of 60 to 70 beats a minute to 110, 120, 130, sometimes more. And people get lightheaded, dizzy, you know, uh, some pass out even uh, from that. And that's that's a cardiac regulatory thing that they really don't have figured out yet. Um, but this, uh, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, that affects brain function because if you stand up and your heart goes so fast you can't pump efficiently, your brain is now starved for blood flow and oxygen and 
you might even fall and hit your head at that point. So it becomes much more complicated if that happens. So postural stuff with that, there's, there's all sorts of residual, you know, lung function, uh, cardiomyopathies are very common. Those are peripheral, quote unquote, to the brain, but they're core to the brain's function. In, in fact, most of the brain's difficulty happens because the glia have receptors uh, for ACE2, which is the the hook that the the spike. Everybody sees this nice fuzzy kind of a red little fuzzy thing sticking out of a white ball, and those little red fuzzy things sticking out are called a spike. And if one of those hooks onto the the ACE2 enzyme. Um, it basically is now hooked onto a cell and it's going to infect that cell. So the ACE2 is, is throughout the human body, but it's really the inside of blood vessels, the, the smooth uh, endothelial uh, lining inside of the abdomen uh, and the glia. Those are where the ACE2 sit. And if you get an infection, that it can infect directly into the brain. It gets into the brain through the nose. The olfactory bulbs are uh, brain structures that stick underneath the frontal lobe, and there's little little cells that hooked it hook it into your nasal uh, membranes, so you can smell things. And the loss of smell and loss of taste are really common early symptoms that you've got COVID. Once it's in, it's in, and it may simply take away the uh, peripheral receptor, but if it actually enters the, the brain, you can end up having a viral encephalopathy, the, the virus actually infecting the brain's glia. It's more common to just lose the peripheral uh, receptor, not have the entire brain infected through the olfactory uh, loss. Um, you can get it through the eyes, and uh, the, the doctor is wearing... Uh, surgical masks and everything uh, finally discovered that this was actually airborne, not, you know, contact, you know, wiping down the cupboards are not quite as effective as making sure you've got good outside airflow and, and air purification. And you can also get it into the brain through the vasculature. And that appears to be the primary uh, area of entry into the brain uh, other than the olfactory and optic, which uh, are, are definitely uh, paths in. But the vasculature uh, throughout the body is, is ba basically, it's a blood vessel disease. And you know, it, it hits the lungs really hard because if it makes it into the body, the lungs are a, a real uh, likely endpoint for it to hit. But um, it, it, the vasculature can throw out a large um, a thromboid, um, a, a, a clot, basically, and that forms a stroke. And they've identified strokes in in uh, uh, patients. Usually, they end up in the hospital if you have if you're 30 years old and you you know you go paralyzed on one half of your body or you lose speech or something like that. You know you're going to be in the hospital. But there are a, a, if you end up with a brain infected it's going to end up having a different pattern. But you can also have generalized effects on the brain that aren't direct in the brain effects like hypoxia. You know, your lungs are so inefficient, you're breathing as hard as you can, and you're still not getting enough oxygen to oxygenate the blood. 
at that point, your brain goes hypoxic. And you can also have immune inflammation where the inflammation creates uh, the cytokine storm that everybody hears about. If that happens, the inflammation associated with that actually compresses the, it, it makes the brain swell and it compresses the blood vessels and it creates ischemia, which is, uh, which is a, a, a real severe uh, issue with respect to the brain. So you either have a large stroke, which is a thrombotic uh, CVA or cerebrovascular accident or stroke. You could have a viral encephalopathy where the virus actually invades the brain, which creates a spindling fast pattern in the EEG. You could have the inflammatory encephalopathy with edema, the swelling of the brain, and that creates a slowing in the brain. And you could also have small vessel, instead of a large clot that causes a stroke, how about if they're really, really small microemboli that don't create a stroke, but when they float up into the brain, they'll make it into a small blood vessel, not a large vessel. And those small vessel microembolic uh, uh, changes create edema uh, and they'll, they'll create ischemia in the area due to the vascular change. So, um, you know, none of these are good, but, you know, ischemia is kind of a funny word, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, the first time you see it, you wonder how to say it. You know, I S C H E M I A. But the, it, it's um, it's actually insufficient flow to carry enough oxygen and glucose. So your brain is starving for oxygen and glucose. But it's not like a stroke where there isn't any flow at all. It's a decrease. It's an insufficiency as opposed to a total blockade. And uh, as such, it's a, uh, it ends up with a, a certain level of function that can be supported, but levels of function above that basically will start to starve out. So the ischemia will allow for at rest, you know, but if you start to put a task demand on, you, you actually start to create problems. If you exceed the blood supply's capability, you actually make the edema worse because of hypoxia. And th this, is, this is the same basic process that happens after a concussion. You get a concussion, the brain has a little inflammation in the area that it got bonked, kind of like getting slugged on the shoulder, your, your, your shoulder is going to swell up a little bit. Well, the brain can't swell out, it swells by compressing, and you're going to end up with ischemic change in the area post-traumatic ischemia. And that's the pounding headache that you get after a concussion. Like a migraine ischemia headache, post-traumatic ischemia is, is a, an insufficiency of flow. And if you actually try to put yourself back on the field before your brain is ready, and you put a demand for the brain to function beyond the capability of it, you create hypoxia sufficient to create cell death. And that doesn't sound like a good outcome to me, you know? So in, in a head injury, you're instructed to rest for a period of time. And, you know, you, everybody wants to get out there back onto the field, whatever it happens to be. Even if it's not on the field, you want to get back to work or get back in the game, whatever your game might be. And, you know, the, the just natural inclination to get back at it and do it again can actually cause you to end up with long-term problems. And this is one of the problems with you know, COVID. People want to get back into it 
you know, full bore right away, and they can actually make localized brain ischemia worse and create cell death in the area if they put it back online too fast, too vigorously, too early. So you have to allow for the inflammation to go down or for the ischemia to resolve. Yeah. So that the oxygen and glucose can start circulating more efficiently again. That's correct. So the brain regulates its own blood supply. If you turn an area on, it opens up the blood flow to that area. And if you turn the area on and there's a kink in the hose between the supply and where you are, uh, you're going to end up having a, an over demand for a, a, a restricted capacity. So what we need to do to fix the ischemia is to, first of all, rest, but second of all, gently return to function. Um, if you increase the level of demand, but don't exceed the restriction the supply line has on it, you're going to open up that supply line. And with every incremental opening, you end up having more and more and more uh, function return. Uh, at, at some point, you're back to being fully online, but you can't rush it. And it's, you know, everybody has the desire to get back into their routine and that's your game. And if you want to jump in too fast, you're going to end up not being able to play your game very long, very well, because uh, the, the, the inclination to go fast ends up being uh, uh, quite problematic. You know, the, the EEG has been used uh, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively to look at brain blood flow and uh, thus ischemia for a long time. Uh, 1997, there was a position paper about quantitative EEG that actually is quite positive about the EEG, QEG for detection of ischemia. So it, it's, it's been long known that the EEG was sensitive to and could detect these things. Uh, there was a nice paper in 2012 in Clinical Care Medicine's uh, journal that was a review that looked at quantitative EEG's ability to detect and track uh, brain ischemia. And they, they suggested that it couldn't just be used for diagnostic detection of ischemia, but it could also be used to track the therapy progress as, as uh, treatments were being done to see whether in fact the ischemia is being repaired. So, um, you know, we've, we've, we've known for a long, long time. And the correlation between uh, perfusion, the, the, the uh, amount of oxygen and glucose that actually get into the, into the end tissue uh, and EEG frequencies has been known for a long time. And we, we end up having a certain narrow frequency band just above the resting state EEG. Now, the, the brain can be very active or it can be at rest. And if you close your eyes, for instance, the visual cortex goes to rest. It doesn't go to sleep. I mean, you open your eyes, you don't have to wake up. You know, you're already awake. You know, uh, it just it, it puts the resting but ready rhythm in the back of your head in the visual cortex. And that idling rhythm is, is referred to as alpha. It was the first, uh, first brain frequency to be identified in the late 1920s, 28, 29, when it was published. And the alpha rhythm is normally seen as 8 to 12 cycles a second, little oscillations that happen. And below 10 hertz in the, the 8, 9, 10, it is, in fact, a resting state. Uh, the, the resting state alpha at about 10, 11 hertz 
um, on up to about 16 hertz actually is a neutral positive perfusion. It's above the average level of perfusion. So you're making a very little bit of demand. It's not just at rest, but it's not hyperperfusion. It's just above the mean. It's not at two standard deviations or three standard deviations. In fact, it barely reaches statistical significance above the mean. And it's those neutral positive perfusion frequencies that we need to train people to produce to know that we're gently activating the area, not over activating the area. At about 16 hertz on up, if you're making that kind of activity, this beta activity, the second frequency to ever be identified, um, and, and that fast buzzy rhythm uh, ends up being uh, the brain too busy. And if you're putting out beta frequencies in the area, you're likely to be overtaxing the blood supply and as such, uh, we, we typically try to train people to produce these neutral positive perfusion correlates and suppress the hyperperfusion correlates so they don't overtax the brain. So there, there are ways to train that brain, and I'll, yeah. I'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to, to, to look at EEG or th think about EEG. You, you talked a little bit about how um, EEG might indicate some of these effects of the coronavirus. Um, whether it's ischemia or some other sort of maybe an immune response. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? I'd be really curious, you know, if we, we took EEG from someone who was, you know, post-coronavirus uh, but still having symptoms, what sorts of things might we expect? Sure. The symptoms, first of all, depending upon where in the brain the ischemia works. You know, if you have ischemia in the left posterior temporal area where you normally comprehend language and mathematics, you might be a little, you know, iffy on how well you pick up what people are saying, or, you know, the, the usual amount of skill you have in mathematics. Um, you, you might feel a little fuzzy in the area that you used to be able to work in. And if that's the case, that area needs to be brought back online gently. But if it's a different location, if it's the left frontal area off to the side, you might not be able to find words. You might not be able to remember names. It's, it's, a, it, it's not your speech motor area, but it's an area associated with a speech motor. Broca's area is the name of the area that, that you use to speak. But you have to find the words that you're going to speak, and you have to hold them in working memory. And that happens laterally to the speech motor area. So if that area is impaired, you're going to have trouble with, you know, pulling up factoids because you're, you're unable to hold them in working memory. Now that's on the left side. Words are really easy to measure and judge and everything, but there's a lot of deficit in the right hemisphere that's very difficult to quantify or subjectively pin down. Quite often, losses in the right hemisphere are, quote, neglected. You can have a stroke in the right hemisphere and pretty much deny that there's anything wrong with you. And, you know, objective people outside of you say, no, you had a stroke. You know, you, my business partner went to pick up a relative to go to dinner. And uh, she came to the door. She's impeccably dressed. She makeup on one half of her face is perfect. The other half of her face looks like the kids got into the makeup and, you know, lipstick kind of smeared around the lips, but not really in the right spots and rouge all over and eye 
shadow. It's just, it's a mess. And they realized immediately what had happened. But she thought everything was fine. You know, we're taking her to the hospital. What for? We, had to, we think you had a stroke. I didn't have a stroke. I can speak. You know, I didn't fall down. I, you know, the, but you, you lose spatial perception and you lose emotional uh, uh, perception. So the, the right hemisphere is a lot more subtle in how it presents, but it can be very debilitating. If you can't perceive your social context, is he smiling? Is he frowning? That's a spatially encoded facial expression thing that's right hemispheric. And if you can't tell your social context, you're going to become anxious about your social context. Gee, it, are, are the people around me happy or sad? God, I don't know. I can't tell. Well, you're prosodically blind. You can still express emotion, but you can't perceive it. And, you know, you're, you're in a mess at that point. You can lose motor function and, you know, become clumsy, uh, premotor area in the front. You can lose perceptual acuity in the perceptual integration area in the back of the head. So depending upon the area of the brain that's experiencing the ischemia, you get a wide variety of different symptoms. The brain is very flexible in what symptom it can present. And pretty much anything you can imagine behaviorally can end up being messed up by the brain not working right in a special area. So we look at the brain's activity. And remember, I mentioned alpha earlier. The resting state, the ideal 10 hertz, 10 cycles a second rhythm in the back of the head. Well, if you look at the alpha peak, that's not just a 10 hertz tall, skinny peak. There's a range. Sometimes it's a little slower, sometimes it's a little faster. The brain likes flexibility and it needs to be flexible. Well, if it's got a lot of slower frequencies added in, not just down to 8 hertz, the, the bottom edge of what we consider alpha typically, but slower than normal alpha. And it still represents this, bursting, this person's resting state. Um, that slow edge of alpha tracks ischemia. So we can look at the brain's function and predict whether you're likely experiencing some symptoms. Just like we can see migraine ischemia, post-traumatic ischemia, we can look and see Rona ischemia. You know, and it's not something we want to see, but when we see it, we know that it can be uh, improved. Now, hyperbaric oxygen is a great way to treat ischemia. But how many people do you know that have hyperbaric in the back room? And a lot of the hyperbaric that's of, around isn't really of the therapeutic variety where it's a hard chamber with, with, with oxygen. It's, you know, there are people that have zip up kind of like a body bag with a window a form of, of hyperbaric. And you can get pressurized, but not to the same level as a, as a hard chamber. And you're not supposed to use straight oxygen in them because of fire hazard and things like that. So, and I just assume that go up in flames with my therapy. So I kind of agree with the standard. But if you can get a hard chamber uh, hyperbaric, you likely can end up fixing a lot of the ischemic change uh, as a as a an adjunctive treatment, you still want to try to to gently activate the areas. You don't just go sit inside the the hyperbaric and twiddle your thumbs. Uh, well, at least you might do that at first, but you you want to you want to gently bring the areas back online that you need to bring back online so that they demand some flow as well. But uh, the EEG can also be trained uh, operant conditioning. 
you can train a dog to salivate. We can train the brain to make a silly cyclosecond faster or slower. And uh, sure enough, they've, they've shown historically that the brain can be trained to jump through its own hoops at, in a frequency domain. So we can enhance one frequency and suppress another uh, very readily with operant conditioning of the brain called neurofeedback. Right. As you know, I'm a neurofeedback provider, and I have started getting some referrals for, for long haulers who are experiencing some of these symptoms like fatigue or, or concentration problems and, and even brain fog. Is there any evidence that neurofeedback can help with these long haulers? It's such a new phenomenon, it's yes. hard to know. Um, it, it, I can say yes based on case experience, but we can't say yes based on some big control study. This is a brand new phenomenon. I mean, it, people are just starting to find out that it can be worked with. So nobody comes to the parade to watch the people sweep up at the end. Those are the researchers, you know, that they, they will come along after the fact and sweep up and tidify and make everything neat and, and scientific. Everybody comes to the parade to watch the elephants and especially to watch the elephants crap on the sidewalk, you know, so um, that some pay for, for people to, to sweep up later. Well, we definitely have elephants crapping on a sidewalk. This is an effective parade, and we, we, we literally can fix the areas that are not functional. In fact, we could do that with migraine ischemia and post-traumatic ischemia before this. Um, this is just a new etiology for the ischemia. It's not a new phenomenon. It's, it's not like we're suddenly plating gold into the brain or something, you know, I mean, uh, as, as tempting as that might sound cosmetically, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily. So we, we, we literally can uh, change the brain's, brain's function in a neuroplastic way. Plastic means malleable or changeable, not just like plastic pollution in the ocean or something. And the brain is neuroplastic. It can change. And uh, we, we can literally train the brain to change itself in a systematic way uh, with the proper training uh, th these do respond in about the same time frame as a migraine or a post-traumatic ischemia responds uh, not quite as fast in some circumstances if it's more severe but pretty close to the same rate at which you'd train away somebody's add adhd problems 30 40 training sessions are very commonly um, uh, done to the point of uh, an effective treatment some really severe ischemic changes end up taking a little bit longer, but the, this is something that's workable and doable in a, in a clinical practice. This is not um, impossible. Yeah, it's you know, certainly worked with uh, post-concussive and migraine from, and, and found signs of ischemia through the, the quantitative EEG and, and have been able to sort of train those down. Mm -hmm. um, so it would make sense that this would, would work in the same way. This virus can really attack both directly and indirectly to really impact the brain through ischemia, through inflammation, uh, and that the EEG, you're talking about the EEG can actually help identify where in the brain that's happening by, by in one way at least, by looking for that sort of slow edge of alpha. Where's that alpha Correct. kind of uh, inefficient? And, and if there's been uh, direct inflammation in the brain, uh, or a direct infection in the brain, you can end up identifying the locations of that as well. But those will be delta focuses uh, because of glial damage. 
and uh, those are a lot more difficult now there i you know a decade ago i would have said well you know you've lost your white matter uh, figure a way around it but you're lost it there's no way no way in hell that's gone it's you know it's it's, it's toast forget it uh, you know if if your visual system has demyelination figure out how to use your ears and your nose or your hands or something but you're not going to get that back but you know I, I, i'm a little slow it took me a few pieces of research to hit me in the head before i believed it but mario Beauregard at montreal neurological showed in his research that neurofeedback could change white matter and gray matter and he published two, two separate publications all about the same thing. It wasn't just the same data, but it was two, two major publications about it. And I was still too dumb to believe it. And it isn't like I disbelieved it. It's just that it didn't jump from the research paper to, yeah, you can change your white matter in, in a recommendation. But finally, I saw the work by Jaime Pineda at UC San Diego working with autism. And the, the autistics actually had diffusion tensor imaging, which is an MRI specially processed to look at white matter. And we saw neurofeedback sculpt the white matter. The, the, the neurofeedback changed that white matter in, in a way that was really quite dramatic and contingent to the training. And finally, I'm going, well, it takes three strikes for this idiot to finally learn it, apparently two from Beauregard and one from Dr. Pineda, but I finally changed the story. You know, that the theory is basically a story we tell about our data. And when your data conflicts with your story, you better change your damn story. So, I, I, you know, like I say, about a decade ago, I should have known and I started to change the story, but it was much more recently, maybe the last five, six years, that, that the white matter being changeable with training was something that actually, you know, clicked for me. And it isn't like it didn't happen before that, but uh, it, my expectation changed. I know it's possible. So, you know, why shouldn't it be possible for this patient? So with the white matter that's from direct infection and you'd see it with uh, increase in, in Delta activity, that is the, the, the slowest yeah. brain activity. And, and typically in an adult, you wouldn't see that when they're awake um, unless they've had some kind of brain yeah, injury. Yeah. So, so traumatic brain injury, folks that I've worked with certainly show a lot more Delta than, than yeah. you would typically see yeah. in the adult. And white matter damage, white matter damage leads to Delta. And the Delta is, right. we mentioned Alpha, which is about eight to 10, excuse me, eight to 12, and then Beta, which is faster than that. Delta is really slow, one, two, three, four cycles a second. Uh, it's seen in sleep as a normal frequency. It's seen in your first year or so of life as a normal frequency before you wire everything up and start to actually, you know, interact out in the outside world. But uh, Delta is, is pathology, uh, not just normal function. If you have damage to the brain where white matter has been damaged, you see Delta in that area. So it, it tracks encephalomalacia, a softening of the brain in an area. And um, there, there's three kinds of encephalomalacia uh, uh, <laughs> based, based on the surgeon who looks at it. It could be white. That area lost flow. And it's, a, it's an area that's not vascularly you know, flowing. So it, it's white. Uh, it could be red, which means it lost vascularity. The area kind of died off, and then somehow the blood vessel opened up again, and now it's red. Uh, and and uh, 
and it could be yellow, which is atherosclerotic plaque in the area causing the, the encephalomalacia. Encephalomalacia just means there's a soft spot. And when you lose the number of cells in the area, it gets a little spongy, a little soft. You, you, hope, that it's, uh, you hope that it's red uh, because that could be put back online. If it's white, uh, the clot blocked off the vascular flow and that area is basically died off. If it's yellow, it's too clogged up to probably bring back online. Uh, but if it's red, <laughs> you've got flow, all you need to do is bring back online enough of the tissue that's there to end up bringing function back. And it's surprising how many cells you can lose and still function. You know, the older I get, the more I appreciate that. But uh, in, in Parkinsonism, for instance, before you ex experience your first symptom of a tremor, that somebody will look and say, well, that's that pill rolling hand tremor of Parkinsonism. Before you show that, you lose about 75% of the cells in your substantia nigra, a, a basal ganglia d deep in the forebrain, a, a little spot that's normally kind of a dark cell. Uh, they call it substantia nigra. And uh, when that area is damaged severely, then you start to make symptoms. Now, all you've got to do is shift a few percent one way or the other, and you can get rid of those symptoms too. So luckily for us, uh, we're not working with uh, uh, progressive dementia. We're, we're dealing with uh, a trans transient uh, health effect that now we can reverse. Right. Although this, this virus does seem to be uh, getting into and affecting the brain in lots of different ways. But as you're saying, like with with some combination of rest, getting the brain to calm itself, you know, calm down, and then slowly push it, and maybe using neurofeedback or something like that as a supportive structure or, or, or scaffolding for the brain to to come back online, we can help help these patients, these long haulers, recover. Yes. Now there's brain stimulation technologies, but. One of the things with stimulation technologies is it's really very easy to push things beyond their limit or capacity. And again, if you push it beyond the limit, you can create some cell death, which doesn't sound very good to me. So uh, the, the stimulation technologies have to be done so gently, and it's very difficult to restrain yourself as a therapist from turning the DC stimulator up just one more notch so that the person can actually feel it. You know, oh, there, there you go. Now you can feel it. We'll leave it there. Nah, back it off a little bit. You know, do it, do it at a, a sub-threshold for perception, but still have gentle stimulation on the brain. So uh, um, we, we have to be uh, cautious and gentle in our approach with, with uh, people that have uh, suffered uh, coronavirus. So the takeaway message for people still experiencing symptoms is to treat them carefully but that we do have some tools that can help. As we begin to wrap up, there are a few one thing questions I'd like to ask. First, what is one thing listeners should take away from our discussion? Don't get coronavirus because recovery is slow and difficult for many people. In, in fact, the hospitals estimate that half of the people that come out of a hospital setting have long hauler syndrome. And that's not counting the number of people that didn't get hospitalized that probably also have it. But if you just use the half of those that were hospitalized number, well, we've probably got 3 million clients out there that don't necessarily know who we are yet, 
that are going to need to be helped. And we, we have one of the more efficient, effective ways of helping. Uh, you can't effectively treat the ischemia in an area of the brain without negatively impacting other areas if you're trying to fix it with meds. We have a very specific technique. There's lots of other approaches undoubtedly being tried. I wouldn't disparage somebody trying one of them, but we've got one that works and we know it works because we've worked with ischemia from other etiologies. And I've seen uh, multiple cases of coronavirus brain function deficit, the long hauler brain, uh, reverse uh, their course and return to normal function. Uh, so it's entirely possible. Uh, I've, I've seen uh, solid evidence of pre-post testing where we had before the virus EEGs on the people. So we had pre-COVID, we had COVID symptomatic, you know, post, post-COVID infection, but symptomatic COVID long hauler brain. And then we've had post-therapy with the, the return to normal function. So we, we've got good solid data. It, it's not a control study. There's no randomization into condition. There's no control group, those sorts of things. But there's a strong enough case series at this point to, to, to think that we should be doing a control study if there was funding. Uh, at that point, we'd have, we'd have you know, better you know, solid outcome. And I'll, um, I'll put some links into the episode notes to help people find neurofeedback providers if they're interested. There's, there's some good professional organizations with, with member finder that you can find a practitioner in your area. What is one thing that you're doing to take care of yourself during this time? Well, uh, other than being retired, uh, I, I've done what I can to try and piece together uh, what's left of me for quite a while. I, um, uh, I've got lots of things that have uh, kind of failed. I'm, I'm old. Uh, what can I say? I, I think being a little bit more um, gentle with those around me is something I've done for myself. It cuts down on uh, some interpersonal stress and um, allowing people to uh, who are under social stress being cooped up uh, to, uh, to not be constrained by me. So I, I cut back on trying to influence those around me somewhat, just let let things flow a little bit. And it, it cuts down a lot on the stress on me by trying uh, to control things a bit less outside. I've, I have watched more carefully than I had before for infections, but a brain infection for me is so easy to happen. I, I've got an open pathway. If I catch a cold, I can end up having a brain infection. So I have actually uh, gotten crazily more rig- rigorous uh, on uh, personal protective equipment. You know, you can get an N95 or you can get a P100. A P100 filter is used on a, a, a respirator usually. And uh, I've got one on the top of my head piece with a fan hooked to it, well, a blower hooked to it, and it filters air, you know, really super filtered air, and it then blows it across my face shield that I put on. So I have a positive pressure face area and a face shield, and then a a mask on underneath that. It's about as protected as you can get uh, for not catching something in your eyes or nose, and um, uh, 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 that that's new. I wasn't protecting at that level. 
I was basically just protecting through the nose before uh, I got the eyes covered now as well. Actually, a customer of mine and a, an old friend made one for me. Uh, it's a custom custom design, the J5000. <laughs> well, sounds like a few people are trying to keep you around at least a little bit longer. Yes. If uh, Apparently, I'm amusing enough that they're, yes. they're keeping me along for a joke, if nothing else. So. And, and finally, what is one thing that you think the coronavirus experience has changed forever? Um, uh, uh, faith in the government's response uh, is just not there at this point. I, uh, I had CDC and FDA at very, very, very high levels of trust before. And uh, obviously, at a high level, they can fail. And that's a really quite unfortunate uh, you, you have to have faith in those systems in order for you to believe that vaccines are safe and things like that. So I, th I think those agencies have uh, failed themselves in, in a way that's going to be damaging to their long-term reputation. And that's extremely unfortunate and, and quite a loss. I mean, I, I was heart sunk when I saw them succumbing to political pressures. It was I, I trusted them, you know. <laughs> so. Well, pol politics and healthcare are uh, not very uh, good bedfellows. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, t t t terrible circumstances to have the two at the same time. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Please rate the show and leave comments. You can contact me at inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Jay Gunkelman is an expert in understanding EEG and what it tells us about brain functioning. Since the early 1970s, he's studied, written, and taught about collecting, analyzing, and interpreting EEG. By conservative estimate, he's processed over half a million EEGs in his career, which ought to be some sort of record. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my, my pleasure, Saul. Anytime you want me to talk about anything, feel free to invite me back. You know, I'm a big blabber. I'll be more than happy to chat about various topics. Well, I, as I've told you before, I can listen to you talking about just about anything for just about any amount of time. And thank you, listeners. I look forward to continuing the conversation on life in the time of Corona. Corona.